Well, how did we get to uh, to where we are today? Uh, this is a, an important day, and if you can be here next week, please be here next week. If you can't be here next week, please listen to it, uh, the recording of it that they do. I don't know how one actually accesses that, but uh, these last two weeks, we're going to try to tie up all of the book here. Job, in chapter 31, has offered what we would call a self-curse. And so this is that kind of curse that you would see with, uh, for example, Jezebel. You know, if, if I don't kill you before this day is over, may the Lord do so to me and more also. That kind of line that's there. Job has this series of if clauses in chapter 31. If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has turned to deceit, if my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has followed my eyes, if my heart has been enticed by a woman... And I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door. If I have rejected the cause of my male or female slaves when they brought a complaint against me. If I have withheld anything that the poor desired or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail. If I have eaten my morsel alone and the orphan has not eaten from it. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or a poor person without covering. Whose loins have not blessed me and who was not warmed by the fleece of my sheep. If I've raised my hand against the orphan because I saw I had supporters at the gate, if I've made gold my trust or fine gold my confidence, if I've rejoiced because my wealth was great or because my hand had gotten much, if I rejoiced at the ruin of those who hated me or exalted when evil overtook them, if I've concealed my transgressions as others do by hiding iniquity in my bosom, here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me like a crown. So he says, if, if write out the charges, write out the, in the indictment, I'll put it right here and I'll carry it around proudly because I haven't done these things. And so when he, he does these if clauses, he's, <clears throat> excuse me, he, he is invoking a curse upon himself. And in the narrative of the book, this is what sort of backs God into a corner. Because if, if God, uh, and God is the one who's supposed to enact the consequences of the self-curse, if God does this and curses Job, then God's assessment of Job at the beginning was wrong. He's not blameless, upright, fears God, and turns away from evil. And so the Satan will end up uh, winning the bet, or, or at least God will be proved wrong about Job's righteousness. On the other hand, if he doesn't enforce these curses against Job, then it just shows manifestly that God has been punishing him unjustly. And so he has God in a bind in, in the context of the book, obviously, here. And so now God is, in the narrative, obliged to, uh, to speak. And when he speaks, my goodness, does he speak. I've, I've trimmed down uh, most of it, but kept some of the major questions that God asked here. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man, I will question you, and you shall declare to me. That image of girding up your loins is it's both uh, interesting and comical to me because I made a mistake in describing it once. The idea is that what you do, you're, you're wearing kind of a robe sort of thing, and so you, you take the... 
this is the key, the back part of your robe and tuck it in to your belt and kind of cinch it up. And so now it's almost like you're wearing shorts there. As I described this once, they thought that I was describing perhaps a scene from Braveheart where the Scots are trying to mock the Brits um, that are there. And they thought I was talking about taking the front part of your robe and tuck it in. That's not what I meant at all. But basically it's saying, cinch your belt, get ready for battle. Gird up your loins like a man, I will question you, and you declare to me, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? Upon what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band prescribed bounds for it, set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stopped. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Have you entered the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare. If you know all this, where is the way to light? Where is the place of darkness? Surely you know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. God has a tone right now. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or the storehouses of the hail? Where is the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is gathered to the earth? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings so that they may go and say to you, here we are? And then he turns to those animal pairs. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite for the young lions? Who provides the raven? It's prey when its young ones cry to God. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Who has let the wild ass go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift ass to which I have given the step for its home, the salt land for its dwelling place? Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will it spend the night at your crib? Do you give the horse its might? Do you make it leap like the locust? Its majestic snorting is terrible. Is it by your wisdom that the hawk soars and spreads its wing? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes its nest on high? And so those, I mean, those are just a sampling of the questions that God asks, all designed to, uh, to, to say to well, I don't know. It's actually a quite open question as to what they are designed to say. Uh, we're going to have to talk more about that later, uh, what that first speech is all about. God finally summarizes at the beginning of chapter 4, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Anyone who argues with God must respond. So this is this torrent of words, when it, when it says that God answers Job out of the whirlwind, it almost feels like he answers Job with the whirlwind, uh, that the, the tornado of questions is there directed at Job, these uh, impossible questions to answer, all, this series of rhetorical questions, each of which is designed to elicit a no answer. And so what does Job answer? Well, he doesn't answer. Job answered the Lord, See, I am of small account. 
what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but will proceed no further. Job basically just says, fine, I give. I, 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 I give in. It's, it's an interesting response, isn't it? Because Job, think about the things Job doesn't say. He doesn't say, you're, you're right, I'm guilty. He doesn't say, yet I, I, I deserve this. He doesn't say any of those kinds of things. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't even say, you're right, at all. He just says, I quit. I give up. I surrender. This is Job's moment where Job goes silent. After chapter upon chapter of a book that is all about talking. I mean, in fact, it, it's so much about talking that there may be a clue to what this book is about. Um, when every time one of the friends speaks, first they talk about talking, and then they talk. And Job is ready to hand to come back at them and give just endless amounts of self-defense and rumination about the, way, uh, uh, the ways of God uh, in the world there. And finally God has shown up and Job says, okay, I just, never mind. That's basically what his speech is. Never mind. God has won. Job is a mere mortal God has shown him his place. Who did Job think that he was? In questioning God, this is the end of the story. And so now it's up to God to decide what's he going to do with Job. Is he going to go ahead and restore him uh, after he's been unjustly treated? We, we really ought to move to the end of the prose narrative there, where uh, at the, remember at the end of the, the prose, when we'll, we'll get there, Job is restored. He gets back double all of his possessions. That's actually going to be fairly important next week that he gets back double. Um, he gets back another 10 kids. He gets uh, seven sons and three daughters, and, and he lives to be 140. 140, you know, 70 is sort of the ideal age, and so he lives to be 140. He gets double the lifetime and so forth. So we really ought to move to that part of the book. God has won. Job has been quiet, and they all lived happily ever after is what we ought to see but it's not the end of the book. God starts up all over again and goes right back after Job another time. And I am convinced that it's the second speech that is the key to the whole book of Job. That uh, at least when I, when I say the key to the whole book of Job, remember, the book of Job is a series of rereadings. The, the poetry is already a rereading of the prose. Elihu is already a rereading of the poetry, um, which... Maybe we didn't need, but that's okay. He reread it anyway, and we, we go through there. Uh, everybody in the book's going to ignore him, um, uh, including God. And, but it's, it's a series of rereadings uh, of this uh, particular story here. But at least in uh, the divine speech component, I think the second speech is the key to the book. Chapter 40, verse 6 says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you and you declare to me. In other words, that same kind of language that we found at the beginning of the first speech. And it's interesting that you're going to see three different images that are here in this uh, second speech. And there's already a little bit of a hint 
of what those images are going to be at the start of the first speech. When it says, uh, gird up your loins like a, a man... Well, you know, Hebrew's got a, a several different words for man, just like we do. Uh, so, for example, we have the word human, uh, we have the word man. When I'm, you know, grading my students' papers, I'll, I'll suggest to them that they use, you know, at least, um, you know, a, a, some inclusive language. And it's not so much because you have to make certain ideological commitments. It's just because when we say the word man today, for the most part, it doesn't mean exactly the same thing that it meant as recently as, say, 50 years ago. Uh, and so when Neil Armstrong lands on the moon, he says that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Everybody understood at the time. He didn't mean, <laughs> that's right, you take that, you ladies out there. We, we menfolk did this one. That, that, nobody would have understood it at that point to mean that. It just means humanity. It doesn't exactly mean quite the same thing today. So if you want to be clear in your, uh, your writing, you want to uh, not be more... Uh, restrictive than you need to be. Well, so we have a word like human, we have a word like man, we have the word male and so forth. Well, Hebrew has the same thing. And so there, there's one word uh, for uh, a human being, it's the word um, uh, ish, which is the word for literally a man. It doesn't include uh, women there. Uh, you have other words like the word enosh, uh, which it kind of refers to humanity in its weakness. Um, and so sometimes you could translate it mortal. They usually use the word ben adam for that. But it, it's kind of a, a, a like frail human is the word that's there. The word that's here is the word gever. And you actually know this word because you know the word Gabriel or Gabriel. So the G-B-R at the beginning of Gabriel is the word for like a hero, a manly man. That kind of, you know, that, you know, sort of man. It's it's the, a warrior type of man, and so uh, the the name Gabriel with the L at the end means God, and so it's my hero, my warrior, my my manly man kind of thing is God is what that name means. You you know this word uh, even from Arabic. Some of you are like, I don't, I don't, I don't think I know. So if. Uh, if you think of the most famous Lakers basketball player, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And so in most Arab dialects, the G from Hebrew comes across as a J in them. It doesn't in Egyptian Arabic, but we'll just leave that for the side, uh, to the side. So that J-B-R in Jabbar is exactly the same as the G-B-R in Gabriel. He, he, he's giving this little hint here as he's saying, stand up like a hero. Stand up like a warrior. Stand up like one of these larger-than-life characters. This is a command to Job to do this. And it's going to be interesting the way he teases that out. Verse 8, he says, will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? This is the first time God has ventured over into that language of justice and injustice that Job was uh, raising all through the book. Job never raised any questions about God's power. Uh, the, in fact, he stipulated God's power to the extent that he said, if God shows up, he's going to overpower me. He's just going to bully me, which is what the first speech did. For the first time, God raises this issue. The, the words condemn and justified... Uh, the, the word for condemn is the word rasha here. It, it's a, 
the causative verb, and the verb for uh, to be justified is the it's related to the word tzaddik. And they're legal terms like, will you declare me guilty so that you can be declared innocent? Uh, would you would you say I'm wrong in court so that you can say that you're right in court? Is what he's saying. Do you have an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? And all of a sudden, we're back to power terms. What does having an arm like God and being able to thunder have to do with whether you're just or not? Those are two different issues that are getting mixed into the, uh, the, the, the sauce uh, here at this point. God is going to go forward with this second speech, but it is going to have such a different sort of character than the first speech. All this language of ostriches and horses is gone at this point. We don't hear anything about snow and rain. Instead, we're going to be left with three images, three figures, and it's quite impressionistic, frankly. Uh, I mean, we all, all of a sudden we, we move into like Picasso or something where we see these images and we're going to have to figure out what they mean. The first speech could not seemingly be more clear, I'm powerful and you're not. But now we get these three images here and we have to figure out what God is trying to get out with them. All right, here's the first image. It has to do with being a king. Listen to the language of the text here. Deck yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Now, notice the difference. God doesn't say to Job, are you clothed with majesty and splendor? Are you like me, clothed with, uh, with majesty and dignity? That would be the first speech. What he says here is, do this. Clothe yourself with majesty, dignity, glory, and splendor. This is the way kings are described in the Bible. This is the way God, as king, is described in the Bible. God is commanding him to do this. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. Look on all who are proud and abase them. There's a little hint in there. I need to look more closely at it. But uh, at the, uh, the, the Ozymandias uh, line that's in there, you know, look upon me and despair. That kind of line, That's uh, maybe this is where uh, that was drawn from. Um, Job drew from Ozymandias, but Ozymandias drew from Job. Just want to be clear um, on that one. Um, so, you know, we don't know the exact date of Job, but we have some data at least about uh, when it was written. Look down upon all who are proud and bring them low. Tread down the wicked where they stand. That's actually one of the prime job descriptions for a king. Whether you're talking about Hammurabi all the way down to the, the kings of Israel, one of their tasks that they claim for themselves is, my job is to protect the weak from the strong. That when, when, when Hammurabi says, it's, it's just the most incredible kind of statement of arrogance you could imagine. When he says, when the gods decided, when, when Marduk, the chief of the gods, decided that he was going to put someone in, he chose me, his humble servant. I, if there's anything I like to brag about, it's my humility, that kind of thing. And he just goes on endlessly about, well, why did he do this? Because I am the shepherd who protects the sheep. 
I am the one who cares for these. This is the job of a king. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. That's his image of kill the wicked here. Then I will acknowledge to you that your own right hand can give you victory. Here, God is commanding Job, act like a king. It's an, it's an odd command. Not just because it's odd to say act like a king when he's not, but because he tells him, clothe yourself with might and, and dignity and glory and splendor and act arrogantly and rule. What an odd image. Why do we have this image? Perhaps even less clear is the second image. Uh, in uh, chapter 40, verse 15, look at behemoth which I made uh, as I made you. All right, so the, the word behemoth, this word only occurs in the Bible one time as a proper noun. Now, it occurs a lot of times in a, another form. The Hebrew word for cattle is behemah, okay, behemah, and the feminine plural ending in Hebrew is oat. So you, you've all heard before of a bar mitzvah, right? So a bar mitzvah. Well, mitzvah, or in Hebrew, mitzvah, is the word for a command. The plural would be mitzvot. So mitzvah, mitzvot. Matt, have I got this right back there, Hebrew scholar? Um, so we've got mitzvah, mitzvot. Matt shined in my Hebrew class last year. That was it. He was, he was the lodestar of the, of the, I would say, gird up your loins like a Hebrew scholar. And so he would, he would say, Jeff, I think that's mitzvot. Uh, not, um, so mitzvah and mitzvot here. Behemah, behemot. Is, is what our word is here. But this is a singular. So why in the world do we have this plural word with singular verbs? It's because it's what we call the plural of majesty. So when, uh, when Queen Elizabeth were to speak and when King Charles speaks now, you hear them say, we. And you, it, do you have a mouse in your pocket? Uh, who, 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 who is this we that you're, you're talking about? It's the royal plural, right? If you've ever seen the, the, uh, the fantastic movie, The Madness of King George, wonderful, wonderful movie. Um, the, uh, in this movie, um, the, uh, King George III, he suffers from a condition called porphyria, and so he, he goes insane um, uh, for a time, and the, the, the question it raises all sorts of constitutional questions in England. What does one do when the head of state is, is you know, out of his mind? And so, you know, you have the, the sons who are aiming for the throne and so forth and all of these kind of machinations. And there's a, a, a doctor played by, just magnificently by Ian Holm, uh, does a, a great job with this. Every, uh, every figure in this movie is well done. Um, but uh, when you can tell that uh, the king has uh, lost touch with his sanity, he switches over from speaking in the royal plural to the singular. And so at the beginning of the movie, it's all we's and ours and we's and ours. And then suddenly, he'll say things like, I have you in my eye. And Ian Holm responds, no, I have you in my eye, sir. That kind of thing. It's this contest of wills. At the very end, when he begins to regain his sanity, the moment that you know that it has happened is he shows up at Parliament and they come out to see him. And, and of course... <laughs> They're just curious to see whether he is as insane as they think. He thinks that they're all coming to, uh, you know, to, to basically wish him well. And he steps out of the royal chariot. He looks at them and he says, I, 
we are so moved that you have come to see us today. And you know that he's back in his right mind, at least for a while. It's this royal plural. The most famous of these royal plurals is the word for God in Hebrew. The main word for God, it occurs thousands of times, is the word Elohim. Elohim is plural. It says, Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created the word bara is singular. It goes with the verb Elohim, which is plural. It's a plural of majesty. Here is some beast, but it's not just a beast. It is some beast on a divine scale. It is some mythological type animal. It eats grass like an ox. Its strength is in its loins, its power in the muscles of its belly. It makes its tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of its thighs are knit together. Now, as you, as you read this, a lot of times what, um, well, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about this in a moment, but it seems like we have a blend of natural and mythological in this animal. That on the one hand, it's described maybe, I don't know, it could be a hippopotamus. It could be an elephant. Uh, those are, you know, the, the sort of natural touchstone for it. But on the other hand, it's going to be described in ways that, you know, supersede anything that's really natural there. Uh, one of the, uh, the, the responses back for... Some have uh, hoped to find uh, dinosaurs uh, in the behemoth and the leviathan that we'll talk about in a minute, and they'll, they'll look, and when you say, well, maybe it's a hippopotamus or maybe it's an elephant, uh, it certainly doesn't sound like a hippopotamus or elephant when it says it makes its tail stiff like a cedar. And they're going, have you seen an elephant's tail? It's not all that impressive, and I, <laughs> I confess. Every once in a while, you just have those moments where you know that God loves you, because you get to witness something that you have no real right to see. And I, I had one of these moments that re, it related to a hippo's tail. We were, uh, well, I say we, I just use the royal plural there. I um, was at the San Diego Zoo, a magnificent zoo if you've ever been. If you haven't been, you owe it to yourself to go. And they have a hippo paddock that is there, which is wonderful because you can see it from up above. But it also has this, this enormous kind of glass area. And so you can see in the waters, I don't know, maybe about four feet high there. And so you can see the hippos below the water, but also see them above and so forth. And on the day that I happened to be there, there was a group of, I don't know, I would guess maybe third graders that were there. A hundred third graders pressed up against the glass to see the hippo. And the hippo was, was ready to perform. And so it's, you know, as, as lethargic as they seem on land, which is actually a misnomer, they're quite fast. Um, he, he's underwater and dancing as if it were one of the hippos from Fantasia, um, you know, going through and so forth. And the kids are like, ah, you know, seeing all of this stuff. And the hippo sort of turns its, its derriere toward the window. Now, you may not know this, but because they eat nothing but vegetation, they poop a lot. And when they poop, they distribute the poop by spinning their tails and sending a barrage of poop. This hippo turned and decided to relieve itself and then sprayed hippo poop all across the window. A hundred third graders screamed on cue ah! <laughs> as they went back. 
the parents and I behind them, I, I nearly had a stroke uh, <laughs> from laughing at them. I was like, okay, Lord, I know you're there. You know, don't, don't deny in the dark the things that you've seen in the light. I know that it's one of the proofs of God's existence. If, if Thomas Aquinas had known about this one, he would have added that one in. Um, it was... But it's, it's tales, not all that impressive. Okay, now, I'm not the author of this, but uh, the scholar David Burnett has made a convincing case that a tale in Hebrew oftentimes is used for another body part. And so it's not talking about his massive tale. It's other things that are in that general region um, is, is what it's talking about here. So that it, it, this description is not incongruous with a hippo or with an elephant. Moving on, its bones are tubes of bronze, its limbs like bars of iron. It is the first of the great acts of God. Only its maker can approach it with the sword. That's an interesting line, isn't it? Only its maker can approach it with the sword. Why would God approach this animal with the sword? It doesn't need a sword to go after an elephant or a hippo. See, it's this combination of both natural and supernatural. The mountains yield food for it where all the wild animals play. Under the lotus plants it lies in the covert of the reeds and in the marsh. The lotus trees cover it for shade. The willows of the wadi surround it. Even if the river is turbulent, it is not frightened. It is confident though the Jordan rushes against its mouth. Can one take it with hooks or pierce its nose with a snare? So we don't, we don't know exactly what's going on with the behemoth, but it's described as the first of the acts of God, some larger-than-life kind of beast that is there that can't be hunted. Most important, though, is our third image. So our first image is that of a king. Our second is that of a behemoth. Our third is that of Leviathan. Leviathan is... It's actually a, a concept that is all over the world that Israel lived in. So from Canaan all the way to Mesopotamia, they were constantly talking about the gods fighting against dragons. And so uh, the, uh, the primary creation story in, the, uh, uh, in Babylon, basically, in the ancient Near East or in Mesopotamia, is the story called the Enuma Elish. And in the Enumai leash, uh, what happens is you go back to the beginning of everything. There's nothing but water. There are two gods. Uh, there is Apsu, who's the god of fresh water. Tiamat, who's the goddess of salt water. And they <clears throat> uh, mingle. Um, and this is where the other gods uh, come from. Uh, and so uh, these are, they're, they're not exactly gods. They're more like the titans that you might think of from Greek mythology. They're kind of a step behind the gods. Well, uh, the, these new gods, they have nowhere to live except for in their parents because there's nothing there but water. They disturb the sleep of Apsu, and so he decides to kill them. And so it's, it's, it's great just the way that the uh, sort of sociological insight of this, you know, the, the mom who's accustomed to having, you know, the kids inside of her is, you know, tolerant and indulgent for the kids. It's the dad who can't sleep, and so he's going to kill the children, that kind of idea. One of the gods, the god of wisdom, Ea, he kills Apsu before Apsu is able to kill them. And then Tiamat comes after them. And Tiamat, well, she's the sea, but she's also a dragon. And she puts fear into all of the gods. The gods are terrified. They get together in a council to try to decide who will take her on. They send out one god, immediately killed. They send out another god, immediately killed. Finally, our hero, Marduk, who is really the person the whole story is about, 
says, I'll take her on, but if I do, you have to make me king of the gods. And so in this great sort of uh, combat narrative that's there, Marduk goes out, he fights against the dragon uh, and defeats her, and then he, he takes a sword, splits her in half, and makes the world out of her carcass uh, that's there. And so this is a story about how did, uh, how did Marduk become king of the gods, which is really about how did Babylon get to be the highest of all the cities in the, uh, the world of Mesopotamia. But it's about fighting a dragon. Well, it's not just in Mesopotamia that you have this. The Canaanites had this story. And so their chief god is the god Baal, and Baal fights against the sea god again. And what is Baal's alternate form? Uh, a dragon. I'm sorry. What is Yom's, the sea god's, alternate form? A dragon. And so it talks about him going. Uh, this dragon has seven heads, and, and Baal takes a club, and he strikes some of the heads, and, and it takes another strike, and he finally kills all of the heads there. But uh, it's fighting against this dragon-like Yom. And in, uh, in the Canaanite language, what the, the other name for this is Lotan. Lotan. Lotan is the same word as Leviathan. Leviathan is this mythical dragon, and no passage in all of the ancient world describes Leviathan in as much detail as does Job. Job describes it this way, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook, or press down its tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope? In its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook, will it make many supplications to you? Will it speak soft words to you? I love that. Will it make a covenant with you to be taken as your servant forever? Will you play with it as you play with a bird? Will you put it on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over it? Will they divide it up among the merchants? Can you fill its skin with harpoons or its head with fishing spears? Lay hands on it. Remember the battle, you'll never do it again. Any hope of capturing it will be disappointed. We're not even the gods overwhelmed at the sight of it. See, there's our illusion right there to the stories from the ancient Near East. No one is so fierce as to dare to stir it up. Who can stand before it? Who can confront it and be safe under the whole heaven? Who? I will not keep silence concerning its limbs or its mighty strength or its splendid frame. Who can strip off? its outer garment? Who can penetrate its double coat of mail? Who can open the doors of its face? There is terror all around its teeth. Its back is made of shields and rows, shut up as closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined to one another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. Now, at this point, you could maybe think of, of different animals that it might be. I mean, in part, it kind of sounds like a whale to some degree, you know, fishing spears and harpoons and so forth. But, but then whales don't really have scales, do they? And so maybe it's a crocodile and, and so forth. But, 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 I mean, they did whaling back in the ancient world. This is, this, we have all kinds of descriptions of whaling from thousands of years ago. And, and crocodiles, well, people killed crocodiles all the time back then. So it can't be that. It, it, it seems like, again, it's a combination of both realistic and mythical, mythical-like. From its mouth, excuse me, its sneezes flash forth light. Its eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. From its mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap out. Out of its nostrils come smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. 
It's a fire-breathing creature of some sort here. Its breath kindles coals. A flame comes out of its mouth. In its neck abides strength and terror dances before it. The folds of its flesh cling together. It is firmly cast and immovable. Its heart is as hard as stone, as hard as the lower millstone. When it raises itself up, the gods are afraid. There's our language again. When at the crashing, they are beside itself. Though the sword reaches it, it does not avail. Nor does the spear, the dart, or the javelin. It counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make it flee. Sling stones for it are turned to chaff. Clubs are counted as chaff. It laughs at the rattle of javelins. Its underparts are like sharp potsherds. It spreads itself like a threshing sledge on the mire. It makes the deep boil like a pot. It makes the sea like a pot of ointment. It leaves a shining wake behind it. There, it sounds kind of whale-like again, and yet it's not exactly whale-like. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth, it has no equal, a creature without fear. It surveys everything that is lofty. It is king over all that are proud. So what, what, what is this Leviathan? It's, it's no natural creature that we can go out and find. We're, we're not going to find some combination of whale and crocodile that breathes fire unless, you know, Smaug has decided to make an appearance from Tolkien back into the world of Job and, and somehow find it, which actually it is sort of dragon-like in that regard. It's, it's one of the things that Job does quite often is mix together mythical and realistic things. And so I, I described to you when we talked about uh, the day, uh, Job's cursing the day of his birth and the night of his conception, these were gods. And in Israel, their divinity had been stripped out, but he sort of takes advantage of their former status of God to give them mythological potency. He does the same thing here with the behemoth and the Leviathan. What's so odd, though, is what? It's difficult to put into words how odd the verses I just read are. Because this Leviathan that God seems to be singing the praises of has one function in Scripture and one function only. God fights it. That's the only thing that it does. It's not there for any other purpose than for God to fight. Psalm 74, God is my king from of old, working salvation in the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the dragons in the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. By the way, did you notice heads, plural, of Leviathan, singular. It's much like Yom in that respect. God fights against the Leviathan. Isaiah 27, on that day. The Lord, with his cruel and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent, he will kill the dragon that is in the sea. Job 26. By his power he stilled the sea. By his understanding he struck down Rahav, another word for Leviathan. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. These passages in Scripture about God fighting dragons go on and on. God is praising 
in elaborate detail an animal that had an entity, a figure, a character, whatever we want to call this, this beast, something that does nothing at all except fight God. Now, I don't want to give away too much because our conclusion to Job is next week. But here we have our first divine speech in which God has seemed to bully Job into silence. And Job dutifully complied. He says, fine, I give up. I, 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 never mind. If God only wanted to shut Job up, then God would have stopped right there and pronounced victory and said, I win, here's your stuff back. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he commands Job, stand up like a hero. And then he gives these three sort of impressionistic images. One, a king. Gird yourself like a man. Deck yourself with glory and honor. Look down on the proud. Trod on, or tread on the wicked that are there. He says, act like a king. And then he holds up these two beasts, these two mythical beasts, that at least in the case of the last one, don't do anything but fight God. God looks at this enemy Leviathan and praises it because it resists him. What is God saying for Job? I think this second speech is the key to the entire book. Job went silent. And God said, I don't want silence. Act like a king. Act like Leviathan. At least Leviathan fights. Job is being commanded by God. He's being urged by God. Don't be silent. I don't want your silence. Keep fighting. Keep fighting. Now the question is going to be, how will Job respond? What will Job do in this last little bit? Because you have heard before, chapter 42, verse 6, that Job says, I repent in dust and ashes. An intolerable reading. Because if Job repents, the Satan wins. Because that was the bet. Is that if you take away his good stuff, then he will turn against you. If Job has to repent, then the Satan won. We should know from the outset, this can't be the ending of the book. <laughs> There's no way they're going to put that. As outrageous a book as Job is, they're not going to put one in where the Satan wins. When we get to that line, when it says Job somethinged in dust and ashes, we need to figure out what exactly is it that he does. And then we have to tease out these powerful words. I don't know if they're powerful, but they are probative words where God says to the friends, you have not spoken rightly concerning me as my servant Job has. What are we to say to that? The friends went on for 38 chapters defending God's justice. Job was the one who was lamenting and crying out against it. And the conclusion to the book says, Eliphaz, you and your friends were wrong, and Job was right. Wherein can Job be right in this book? That's what we'll consider next week. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. Even in its confusing places like Job, I thank you for it. 
and pray that you will draw us into greater understanding of it and you as we study it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.